I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This is David. This is your new episode of Base Layer, and I'm really, really Excited is not the right word because there's going to be so much that we're going to be talking about today, but excited is definitely the word I'll use right now. Camilla Russo, founder of The Defiant and author of an amazing book, The Infinite Machine. Camilla, how are you? I'm great. Uh, thank you so much for having me, David. I'm, I am excited to, to have this conversation, too. <laughs> I, I need to work on my, my, uh, my word usage there because excited is not exactly the uh, the scale of how excited I am about this. So The Defiant is a newsletter focusing on decentralized finance. Uh, We're going to talk all about DeFi and The Infinite Machine is a excellent book about the world of Ethereum and everything that happened there. Um, So before we get too far into both of those, what I always like to do on the show is how did you get into this world? So you know, long ago, you were at Bloomberg uh, covering the markets, uh, different you know st- European uh, stocks, and then also the markets blogger. And then somewhere around you know a few years ago, you found distributed and decentralized systems. You started covering the world of digital assets. So, how did that come about? Where did that really uh, impulse come from? Yeah. So it really started. Um, you know, before I was a markets blogger in kind of my, my very first uh, job um, at, at Bloomberg, which was to report on Argentine markets from Argentina, from the Buenos Aires office um, for Bloomberg. And so in Argentina, the, the main theme that I, that I was covering was inflation and currency controls. This was um, Cristina Fernandez second term um, and you know t- inflation was at 25% and on her like second day um, in office or around that she decided to ban anyone from buying US dollars and this to me was just you know like I, I couldn't really understand it like what like am I really not able to to buy dollars anymore and and this really had a direct impact on me because you know first thing uh, my colleagues told me when I got to the BA office for Bloomberg was as soon as you get your salary in pesos you need to turn it to dollars <laughs> because you know of inflation you'll, you'll end up losing a bunch of money if you don't right. so so that's what I did you know every month I got my salary in pesos and um, changed to dollars and I, I simply did this you know on my online bank account I had my foreign currency account and that was that um, so I was covering this this announcement when Christina said you know foreign like, US dollar purchases are are prohibited and then I went to my bank account and sure enough like I wasn't able to do that anymore Um, so I think it's like I think it's hard to understand for you know somebody who hasn't really lived it this concept of 
currency controls. Like it sounds really abstract, but when it, what it really means is the government te telling you what you can and can't do with the money that you earn and you own, um, or apparently own, <laughs> but, but, but really you don't. Um, so when later on, you know, 2013, when I heard about Bitcoin, I like right away got it, you know, that it was amazing to have this completely independent and parallel um, money, uh, monetary system that didn't depend on central banks or governments or um, financial institutions to work. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was amazing. And I, I wrote, wrote um, uh, a story on that for Bloomberg. I had to kind of convince my editors to do it because everyone thought it was a scam or like didn't really you know, think it was a real thing um, at the time. Uh, some like hadn't even heard of Bitcoin at Bloomberg. Um, so that was interesting. And, and then, you know, since then, um, I continued to be very interested in, in crypto and kind of followed what was going on. So fast forward to 2017, I was in New York um, writing for the Markets Live blog. I wrote mostly about emerging markets, but really had the freedom to write about whatever seemed interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously 2017 was a huge year for crypto and I started mm -hmm. writing about it for, for the blog. And at Bloomberg, there isn't a dedicated cryptocurrency team or crypto reporters and there was a huge demand for for this content so i just started writing and covering crypto for the you know wider bloomberg news wire and tv and radio and um and everything and i became kind of one of the few bloomberg reporters covering the space so mm -hmm. that's when i really started to focus on crypto and um didn't really leave after that right interesting because i think a lot of people don't appreciate the human aspect of what you're talking about you know being in a country having you know currency controls and going through a effectively a debasement where you know the national currency is worthless um and i think a lot of people don't appreciate that we talk about that in a 2020 kind of narrative going forward another year or two with the 10 trillion dollars that we've kind of printed all of a sudden in response to covid over the last six months and how you know paul Tudor jones and others have a pretty good you know belief that that's going to have a a negative effect on u.s dollars going forward and so you know it's interesting that everyone's like oh it can't happen here nothing's nothing's happening here the u.s dollar is strong but it can creep up pretty fast wouldn't you say yeah i agree the thing is is that you're you're kind of trusting that one day the people in power won't um, turn against you or mm -hmm. or won't use the, their 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 power um, in in ways that aren't aren't beneficial, you know. And and it's as easy as uh, flipping a switch. Um, right. Maybe you know. Maybe in the U.S. you have a better kind of institutions and and uh, protections against that, but you know, I'm I'm not entirely sure that it's 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 enough to to really protect um, protect us from from a, a kind of authoritative uh, leader if right. if you know they, they happen to take control. Right. Um, and we've we've kind of seen that uh, I think with with Trump. You know, um, he, he's been able to 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 just you know 
with with tweet move move market and um i've i've felt it again like very directly with his policies on on immigration just like one day saying um oh i'm i'm uh banning uh Uh, like new green cards mm -hmm. and I'm banning this type of visa. And I was mm -hmm. in the process of actually getting um, uh, a, a new visa for myself. And so um, I, you know, I woke up to this, to this one day, this tweet from Trump being like, Oh, today I, I decided to issue this decree prohibiting right. um, new, new, like new, new visas. And I was lucky that they didn't include my like the type of visa that I was getting, but mm -hmm. you know it, it just it it just highlights that people in power can really mess with your with with your life with the with, like just the flip of a switch, mm -hmm. and so it's really important to have this alternative where you know that no matter what happens, you can still be in control. Right, two hundred eighty characters can change the world within a dime. Yeah. <laughs> So I want to talk about the defiant um, second, and I want to talk about the book first because there's a little bit of backlog and history there. So Ethereum was first, and what we're seeing right now with DeFi is kind of what we've been seeing over the last year and a half or so. So without Ethereum, there would be no DeFi. And so I want to talk about the book and what inspired the book. I want to pull a quote that I thought was really kind of cool. And so this is from your book, Uh, which, again, we will have liner notes for, and I want everyone to pick up. Uh, you can do it on your phone if you like that or on Kindle or whatever it may be. Um, hopefully one of these days I can get a hardcover and signed by you. We'll just drop that there as a smile and a wink. Um, they wanted to build a world that would sidestep traditional institutions and allow users to transfer value directly with each other without having to go through the banks and other intermediaries. They wanted to put data and money back under users' control instead of in the coffers and computer servers of centralized entities. That's directly from your book, and that was about some of the core thoughts of those that were starting Ethereum. So talk to us about the book, The Infinite Machine. Um, you're Obviously, you were writing about it at Bloomberg, and then you moved on. Um, and so over the last few years, you wanted to put a a manifesto, if you will. You wanted to put a complete highlight of everything that happened with Ethereum. Why Ethereum and not Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, so I always had wanted to write a book. And my my idea was, you know, like my idol is Michael Lewis. And I always, you know, wanted to find a topic where I could write something that that seemed like fiction um but was actually real life um like some some real life aspect that i could tell in in what read like a a fiction novel so i was always on the lookout for for the right story uh where that would allow me to do that and as i was covering crypto for bloomberg in 2017 um i i thought okay like i think this is it like this is my opportunity to find some book worthy story this you know it's absolutely crazy what's going on um there there has to be a a book in here and so you know i started to think what's the best story i can tell and i thought you know icos are, are like super interesting uh, it's totally crazy what's going on um bitcoin obviously is is the like biggest cryptocurrency the first crypto um the first blockchain but you know It's 
It's been, that story has been told before. Uh, it's been told really well. Um, I think, you know, Digital Gold does an amazing job in narrating the history of, of Bitcoin. But I thought, you know, I thought there, there isn't something similar for, for Ethereum. Um, you know, it's the second biggest blockchain and it's, and it drove so much of the, the craziness of 2017. It, it spurred, um, ICOs. And I think, you know, regardless of whether it succeeds or not, it still moved blockchain um and the industry forward so it already made an impact in in tech and even in in finance i thought mm-hmm. so um so i thought yeah like it, this story need, needs to be told and and it hasn't been told yet so uh i'm gonna do it <laughs> right and so those that are listening right now um as i told you camilla that you know, there's a lot of family offices there's institutional investors they're getting their hands around digital assets by the way, I call them digital assets very specifically, not cryptocurrency, but we can talk about that another time. Um, would love your ideas on, you know, if that is uh, a valid point or not. But effectively, you know, there are people out there that have, you know, started to get Bitcoin into the lexicon. Um, they have heard about it. Your former employer has been writing about it, you know, fairly well for the last few years. Um, but Ethereum has never really gotten the attention of the broad-based media. And so for those that are listening, you know, as you obviously have done an ex- ex- exceptional job in the book. And by the way, I love some of the, the, the titles like The Town of Zug and then The Red Wedding. Um, the Red Wedding harked, you know, kind of Game of Thrones type of feelings for me on that one. Um, you know, why do people, why is there not a lot of attention to Ethereum? And what is it, you know, for those that are learning about the distinguishing factors, quickly kind of break it down for them. What is the distinguishing factor between Ethereum and Bitcoin? So I think, you know, the, the reason that Ethereum hasn't captured the mainstream public's attention as much as Bitcoin yet is because, I mean, Bitcoin is by far uh, the, the biggest digital asset or, or cryptocurrency, you know, however you, you, you want to describe it. Um, you know, it's uh, $200 billion in market cap compares with uh, Ethereum's 40, uh, 45, uh, 50 billion market cap. So it, it's a lot bigger. It drives the market. It, it was the like the first one out there. It's the uh, crypto that people buy first when 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 they're getting in into into you know in, into this market, um, and and then everything comes comes later. And and then I think Bitcoin has done a good job in establishing its use case as digital gold as like the digital asset that that you buy and, and hold as this long-term investment um, or hedge against uh, you know centralized uh, finance if, if you will um, and and so that, that's that kind of use case is well understood Bitcoin is digital gold and I think up until maybe this year or, or last year, Ethereum hadn't really found its uh, product market fit. And I think it's achieving that with, with DeFi just now. Um, like it, it's finally, you know, 
producing an ecosystem of applications that are delivering actual value beyond all the promises um, that developers on Ethereum had been making before. Now that value is, is actually tangible and, and it's it's working. Um, so I, I think that that's why, you know, Ethereum hasn't captured people's attention um, up, up to this point because nobody really understood, you know, what to do with it, like how how to use it. I, I think that's that's about to change now. Right. And so <clears throat> the the main differences um, with with Bitcoin is that Ethereum is well. I, I guess like some some similarities. They're they're both blockchains based on proof of work um, consensus. So you know you mine Ethereum in a similar way than than you mine Bitcoin, um, and it's they're, they're both decentralized uh, distributed networks where you can transfer value from. Uh, one point to another without relying on on third parties. Mm-hmm. But the difference um, with Ethereum is that the the network is also able to process any type of computer program or computation that you throw at it. So um, you know this is the, the definition is that it's um, it's Turing complete. So mm-hmm. it's it's able to. Uh, process any 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 computer program, which right. makes it a more uh, flexible platform and allows developers to build more more complex um, applications and um, and financial products on top of it on, right. on top of this network. So let's dig into that. So this is something that a lot of people don't understand. So at the very core, you have Bitcoin, which is proof of work. You have Ethereum, which is proof of work currently. Obviously, for those that are listening, it is worth noting that Ethereum is going through a change, which has taken some time to proof of stake, which is a completely different consensus model. Um, But as of right now, they're both proof of work. And so with Bitcoin, you have, and versus Ethereum, you have something that is Bitcoin with without state. It is stateless. That means it does not have, for those that are trying to make sure that they're not getting technocrat kind of headaches here, it means like it doesn't have a memory very well. It doesn't have a very good memory there. Um, whereas you mentioned, you know, Ethereum is Turing complete and it has the EVM. It has a memory. It has state. And so with state, you are able to effectively create smart contracts, which will have the ability to remember things within that state. So X plus Y equals Z, if you will. And so that is a very core difference. And that is how this whole thing, especially with DeFi, has exploded. Would you agree or disagree with that? No, I would, I would totally agree. It's the state, uh, smart contracts that you know have memory and are also able to automatically execute actions so you know you're you're able to code into a smart contract when x happens then do y um which you know is kind of the a a basic building block for a a lot of the financial applications that are happening on ethereum and that simply can't be built on bitcoin like for for researching my book um i spoke with some of the like some Ethereum developers who had tried to to build projects on on Bitcoin, but you know simply gave up because it was impossible to do, mm-hmm. and then were able to quickly code, code up their their project in you know a couple of days 
right. on, on Ethereum. Right. Um, so it, it's a it's a big difference, and and it is you know what's enabling this explosion of, of DeFi right now. So before we get into the Defiant, one last question about the book. And again, we'll have uh, liner notes to it because it's just a great read. I've, I've talked to a lot of people, especially founders in the space where I think it was Kane Warwick at Synthetics. He told me that he read it within a 24-hour period. And so especially with someone who's that busy, I'm like, damn, that's, that's a good book. Um, so we'll make sure everyone <laughs> reads it. Um, but I'm curious, what is the most, what, if you had to isolate, and I know this is not a fair question, but if you had to isolate, you know, in terms of all your research and in the writing of the book, what is the, what is one thing that you were really surprised to learn about Ethereum? Mm. Oh, that's such a tough question. I think, let, let me, mm. all right, you can think about that for a second. All right. <laughs> You'll put that into the back um, of your head. Let's talk about the okay, defiant. Okay. Um, so DeFi is a new financial system being built on top of blockchains like Ethereum, as you say. And so DeFi, we've had a lot of founders on the show. I just obviously mentioned Kane. We've had everyone from Robert Lesnar at Compound to, you know, Fernando at Balancer. And we will continue to have lots of other people who are building things on Ethereum in this new decentralized finance world. And so, you know, my question at the top is that what we've seen over this year is we've seen uh, the total value locked, and this is a metric that I've used a few times on the show in the last few weeks, so people should be catching on to it. That is a metric, obviously, that is also being debated as something that is a good metric or a bad metric. We don't really know. We don't have consensus on that. And I think that kind of annoys people because we don't have metrics that we have full consensus on throughout digital assets. But total value locked is one that is being used right now for DeFi. And it went from $830 million at the end of April of this year to somewhere in the range of $6 billion, you know, sometime a few days ago. Um, now, I'm curious. This is a tough question, but I think you can handle this. What part of COVID and everyone being home and effectively kind of bored and looking for that dopamine kind of, you know, hit, you know, that you would get from online gaming or gambling or other things like that. It's my theory that we've seen this explosion in the kind of yield farming, liquidity mining, kind of all the stuff that's happening because everyone's home, they're bored, they're looking for that kind of kick um, and they're playing with all these different things that are happening on DeFi. Why do you think we've seen this explosion in DeFi specifically in the last three to four months? Um, I love the, the COVID uh, theory. I hadn't thought of it, but it's interesting because you you you've seen the same kind of theory in traditional markets with you know the Robin Hood mm -hmm. traders being bored at home um, and you know driving stocks. So it 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 could be. Um, but on the other hand. It seems like crypto doesn't need a reason to go into frenzied speculation. Like uh, it goes into these cycles every you know couple of years, uh, mm -hmm. almost kind of by design. Um, so yeah, I I think the I mean yeah that that could have some some part of in, in what's going on, but um, I also think there there are different reasons within DeFi's architecture that really um, enable the, this sort of very quick uh, exponential 
growth. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a fact that these are all open protocols, uh, open source code in which innovation is, is really very easy. Mm -hmm. And when you start, you know, it's, it's easy for developers to, to start building on top of other, other projects and then others will come on top and build on top, on, on top of that. Um, so it just saves projects a lot of time um, right. from, you know, having to start everything from scratch. You, you can just pick off where others, others left off. And right. so you, you're getting increasingly complex systems. Like you start with like the basic uh, building block, which is MakerDAO with its DAI stablecoin and the ability to uh, borrow DAI against ETH. Um, and then you, you had other lending protocols uh, like Compound and Aave, where you could uh, deposit ETH to, to um, earn an interest rate, or, or you could also borrow other cryptos. And then you have a different layer of complexity, which is something like Yearn, which aggregates all these lending protocols and, and um, distributes your, your crypto in, in the protocol that's giving you the most yield. <laughs> so you right. see kind of this tower being built, uh, where each each project is leveraging what the other other built, um, and so it's just like you start seeing kind of this exponential innovation. And I, I cover it in in the Defiant, which is you know I write this newsletter almost every day, and mm -hmm. the amount of content every single day that I have for it is amazing. Just right. the, the 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 yeah the, the level of activity is is mind blowing. So I, I think it's kind of that maybe compounding effect of, of building on like innovation on top of innovation. Right. And I like the way you break that down. So obviously maker started this whole party where you were able to mend die from Ethereum and then they went to a multi-collateral die and that kind of opened the door and then compound at the beginning of this year, uh, created their own native token for governance, which really kind of exploded things. And now you're seeing all of these different DeFi uh, platforms out there doing the same thing, kind of bootstrapping. That's their favorite word is to say is that this is a bootstrapping mechanism. And so then you're also, you kind of broke it down you know, perfectly where you're seeing other layers of the stratosphere here where you're seeing something like a yearn or you're seeing something like a balancer or you're seeing something like a yams. And mm -hmm. so let's talk about yams because that's just really unfair to you. Um, you know, it's unfair <laughs> to everyone. But for those that don't know, yams is a project out there that came and went very fast. Um, and I've heard that they are trying to resurrect it. But this idea that you would go on there, you would have these digital assets, whether it was Aves Lend, whether it was Compounds Comp, whether it was Die, whether it was whatever it was, it was maybe not eight or nine different uh, digital assets. And you would stake it and you would earn yams. Um, and so, you know, it was very interesting. It was almost like they were becoming a digital asset bank because they were having all of these different uh, collateralizations happening uh, and collecting all of these digital assets to effectively give out their own native token. But for those that are learning about this, if there was a, one or two things that have been learned from yams, which unfortunately, as I said, came and went very fast. Um, what would you say, you know, as a industry that DeFi has learned from that? Um, okay, so I think one obvious lesson is that 
you know, the reason why it it had to kind of shut down, but but to some extent because they they are really coming back. Like they they uh, have money from a grant to do Yam V two, so they mm-hmm. they haven't really they're not totally gone. Right. But um, the reason why the original project didn't work is because there was a bug in the code, mm-hmm. and one of the the reasons there was a bug in the code um, is because they they launched it seemingly overnight well well you can't really know how long the project had had been working on it but you know it wasn't like it was um a a team that had been together for for a while and working on this and kind of updating the community on the progress like Mm -hmm. this thing appeared overnight Mm -hmm. and launched um after you know copying code from compound and a couple of other places like they they just like copied because forth yeah right Uh, um, so they, they copied a code which they didn't audit, they didn't test, and just launched it and on mainnet and a lot of people. Let's stop there. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah, yeah, wait. Yeah. No, no, you said something really important. You said something really important. I'm gonna stop you. Okay. They they did not audit the code. <laughs> yes. Can we agree? Because you follow this more than anybody out there. Can we agree that and I'm saying this because I believe in DeFi. And I want to see, I want to see really take off. And I've been watching it for over two years. So it's not like this has just happened overnight. But can we agree as an industry, you know, a subsect of digital assets, if you will, that platforms should be audited before they go out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's a really tough question. Like in principle, and if everything was very simple. Yes, I think code should always be audited, especially when it's going to be dealing with people's money. But then after speaking with developers like Andre Kronje, who is behind mm-hmm. Yearn Finance, a hugely successful uh, protocol, and he's become kind of this like DeFi idol or some, <laughs> some kind. Um, you know, I, I've kind of mm, uh, tamed my opinion there because... Audits are super, super expensive. And if you're going to be requiring audits from every single project, then like single, single person projects like, um, like Andres or, you know, other, you know, developers out there experimenting and, and, and building stuff are never going to be able to, to launch. So I think there's, there's, um, a middle ground, you know, there's a way to, launch a project, but do it in, in a more careful way, um, maybe setting limits to how much money people can can uh, deposit. Right. Um, maybe, you know, doing a, a sort of beta launch when, when you're inviting uh, a, a restricted number of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just do it in a more, like, careful, limited way as you're raising money to do a, an actual formal, formal audit, and then you're able to launch on mainnet um, and lift those those limits. So I think right. there there's kind of a middle ground, but so I think I this agree. is definitely kind of one big one one important lesson is that you know you need to be careful you, uh, you, when dealing with with people's money. You can't just like throw out a, a, a project to mainnet overnight um, and especially in this environment where everyone is going crazy for DeFi tokens and you mm-hmm. know it's going to attract millions of dollars. And it did. Like, Yam had over $400 million yep. <laughs> in, locked in, in its smart contract in, yep. in two days. And then it, it found the bug. So I think this is a, an important lesson. Just 
just be more careful um, because you know otherwise I think I think there's there's a risk of of attracting you know regulators of turning people off from from this ecosystem um, and to start giving DeFi a bad name and you know it's it shouldn't really matter because if you know if you're in it you know like how valuable it is but you, you can also look at what happened with ICOs which mm -hmm. I honestly think they weren't so bad like the idea I think is actually valuable to be able to fundraise in a decentralized way mm -hmm. but because of the just like completely crazy reckless speculative you know mania that that they fueled and all the scams right. now they have a really bad name and nobody can do an ICO right. so let's not let that happen to DeFi now and I and just you know continue building but in a more measured and careful way absolutely I'm going to, this is my own personal opinion. It may deviate from those that I work with, but um, this is my own personal opinion that in development, you have things like testnet and you have things like mainnet. Um, and so with testnet, the idea is that you should be able to spend enough time to make sure that you get all the bugs out. Of course, it's technology. It ain't going to happen. Technology, you're always going to have problems. Even in you know tried and tested technology, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Twitter, whether it's you know Netflix, you're always going to have a problem. Um, but at the end of the day, you know my opinion is that the testing and the bugs, and especially the bug bounties and all that other good stuff, and the audits of the code should be done in testnet. Um, but then to your point, I think it's good that there's a bridge that you invite a small group of folks out there and limit the amount of exposure they can have. And I've seen that some are trying to limit to like $25,000. Um, and then when you feel confident and, you know, you're getting some good groundswell and people are talking about how great this thing is. And obviously you're doing it also because you're trying to raise money for your, your company. Um, then you go out and you launch your mainnet to the broad world and allow them to do that. But I agree. It needs to be more measured. It needs to be more governed um, because you are absolutely correct. If, you know, the bodies that be out there that are not self-governing, somebody else is going to govern them yeah. and it ain't going to be pretty. Yeah. Um, so I agree. I also, I wanted to point, point out another lesson from, from Yam. Um, I think you know, yes, like it was, it was reckless and they, they should have been more careful and audit. But I think a, a really, you know, positive thing that came out of this is to highlight how effective tokens are in creating a community. Mm -hmm. And I think it was really remarkable how really this like meme um, of like a yam because it yeah. was ridiculous and um, it inspired kind of this you know, this feeling that you were in on a joke uh, with a group of people from all over the world. Um, this kind of made people want to save it and, and, yeah. and want to and be kind of a part of, of the joke, <laughs> right? right. Um, feel, feel part of this group. Um, so I think it was, it was really cool how when the team discovered this bug, they 
they rallied the community to have a governance vote um, where they, they had to push out a fix, which ultimately didn't work. But what did work was the, the governance vote. They, they were able to secure enough um, tokens to, to push the vote. And I think it's, it's, it's really crazy. You know, it's a community that didn't exist the week before and we're now organized enough to have this on-chain governance mechanism and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, um, and coordinate. So I, I think, you know, that was something, something good uh, from, from Yam was uh, the, the community that came out of it. And, and this community is, is still alive and, and pushing forward to do Yam 2 and, and Yam 3 and fix the bug and, and raise money for, for an audit and, and all of that. So, um, I think that's, you know, definitely a, a, another lesson that uh, startups and blockchain projects can take. Absolutely. As I'm winding down to the top of the hour with you, I'm curious as you are getting such inbound and obviously, as you're saying, you know, you write every single day for the Defined and there is always a wealth of information and things happening in DeFi Anything out there, either, you know, kind of narratives or specific sub-layers of DeFi, anything that has come across your desk over the last few weeks that really made you think, that was like, wow, that's actually really, really cool and it can have a huge use case. Um, for one, you know, there's one that came on my desk. Uh, I won't name the name of the, the project until they actually decide to come on the show. Um, but um, it's this idea of a decentralized credit score. Um, and I really think that's kind of really cool. Um, you know, the whole idea of the FICO kind of thing that we've been dealing with for so many years. You know, is there a different way to actually do that? And that kind of also feeds into this idea of self-sovereign identity that, you know, is possible with vis-a-vis -vis blockchains. And so, you know, this idea of a credit score or kind of managing that type of activity vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, DeFi is really cool. But what about you? Anything that's out there that you kind of were like, wow, that's actually really, really something that could be huge? Um, let's see. I think, well, a, a big trend now is uh, this idea of of getting more real-world real assets on on DeFi and on, on Ethereum. Um, you know, Maker uh, kind of started this this trend in DeFi, I guess, by by taking in um, other collateral outside mm -hmm. of ETH, and you know, taking USDC, and and now they're they're evaluating whether whether to take other kind of tokenized real world assets. Um, there there's there's a project that is also that's focusing on that on. Uh, you know, tokenizing uh, real estate and mm -hmm. um, and kind of uh, like supply chains um, and you know different aspects of like the real economy and bring it bringing it to to DeFi. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll be you know I, I think it it will have to to happen uh, because we need this this bridge between. Um, the the crypto sphere and and the the real world. Right. Uh, so I think that that's you know definitely going to be a growing a growing trend. And I, I think more more kind of um, I think that the, the the biggest example of of kind of 
this is not like real world asset, but like non-Ethereum assets on, on DeFi has obviously mm -hmm. been um, uh, Bitcoin on, on Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And that's like totally exploded this year. Mm -hmm. So like wrapped Bitcoin that, that's, that's made, to, made into Ethereum tokens. So because Bitcoin is another cryptocurrency, it's easier to, to wrap it into into make it into an ethereum token and and use it in in defi mm -hmm. but i think you know it's it's um it it shows how quickly something like this can pick up like once you get kind of the mechanism right into tokenizing real world assets um it, it can really it, it can really explode in like very quickly so i think you know there, there are projects working on this and um I, i think that's kind of the another big trend that we're 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 about to see and then i, I guess like something that everyone in, in DeFi has been waiting for and, and talking about, I guess, since the start of DeFi is under collateralized lending. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of the, I think, holy grail that will allow uh, DeFi to grow and, and, and to become more, more mainstream because right now you need kind of capital to, to participate right. in, in DeFi. Uh, you need to put up collateral to take out loans. Um, and Avid, did this you know i think has come is one of the the projects that's come closer to achieving something close to uh, under collateralized loans with mm -hmm. its delegated credit which i it's still collateralized but you're they're allowing one person to transfer their collateral to someone else so effectively the end borrower isn't putting up their own collateral so i think mm -hmm. it, it was a really interesting way around it Um, so I think we'll continue to see experiments like this until hopefully we'll get to a point, maybe with, with something like the, the decentralized uh, credit score that, that you were talking about, maybe that will be kind of a tool to enable under collateralized uh, lending as well. Right. This was amazing. I can talk to you forever, but I'm going to let you go and... For those that are listening, again, this is Camilla Russo, the founder of The Defiant. We were going to make sure that everyone has a link so you guys can subscribe to this. If you aren't already, you are missing out on the pulse of DeFi and also Camilla's book, The Infinite Machine. Again, everyone that I know that has read this says that they can't put it down and that it is a quick and easy and very insightful read about the world of Ethereum. And so thank you for coming on. Hopefully we can catch up with you again soon to hear what's happening in DeFi and all the other good things that are happening out there. Thank you, awesome. Kamala. Thank you so much. That was a really great conversation. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.